Well, good morning, and uh, thank you for being here today. Before I get into our, our uh, message from God's Word, I just want to uh, tell you about something really exciting last night that I got to be a part of. As many of you know, our More and Better initiative that we began like a year and a half ago, we shared our heart and some of the initiatives that we wanted, and we raised money, and a part of that is uh, this expansion of this auditorium. But some other really cool things that we have been uh, quietly working on, and one of them is to begin the fifth campus of our church as a congregation of Mandarin-speaking, primarily uh, Chinese um, uh, folks in Northwest Indiana. So last night I was invited to be a part of a, a gathering of what is you know, likely our kind of our core group, and they were celebrating the uh, Chinese New Year, and they handmade all of these uh, uh, dumplings, and it was really some of the best Chinese food I've ever had. And uh, then we gathered together, had a time of worship, and what a sweet, sweet gathering it was. We took a picture, just so uh, this was last night, there it is, last night, and uh, I tell you, it's just thrilling to see, it's... Okay. I'm sure you're applauding the cute children in the middle of the picture with that. Thank you. Uh, but it's thrilling to just, you know, we, we sat there and we listened to them uh, sing Christian songs in, in Mandarin. And uh, to just think, wow, this is like something that's about to happen. We, we're not sure when, but uh, I mean, you know, possibly maybe Easter we could begin some kind of regular kind of, you know, Sunday sort of worship gatherings, and so it's going to be really, really exciting. Continue to pray that God would uh, provide for that, and it was a super great night. Well, if we think of the great acts of freedom down through history, they all happened through some extraordinary means. So if we think about, for example, uh, slavery being abolished in the British Empire, act of parliament led by William Wilberforce. Or we could think about the Israelites coming out of Egypt and all that God did in the, in the miracles and, and all of that led by Moses. Or we could think about our own country and, and American slavery and all the things that happened in our country through the Civil War, etc., uh, led by Abraham Lincoln to uh, bring about freedom. In each case, freedom was the outcome, but the way the freedom was accomplished was by some means. In fact, the greater the bondage, the greater the means required for the freedom to come. And here in Romans 8, the major glorious theme of the chapter and largely of the book is that, is freedom. Okay, freedom from guilt, freedom from death, freedom from, from condemnation. Uh, Romans is this like in-depth anthology of how that freedom was accomplished by God. In some ways you could call it God's war and peace. Like it's just this unveiling of how God did it. And Romans 8 is the crescendo of, of, of Romans. Now some of the most famous portions of Romans 8 are later in the chapter. And here in the beginning, Paul is still in doctrine mode. Like he is still explaining things. And this is a very teaching section that we have here in front of us that unpacks how freedom was achieved. So we looked at verses 1 and 2 last week, which I'll just read briefly. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For 
uh, God, for the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And we saw this last week, we rejoice in this last week that there is in Christ now no condemnation. And that condemnation means that there is no condemnation now and there is no punishment now. It also means that there is no condemnation ever because it's a promise from God that there will never be a new set of accusations brought against us. There'll never be a new set of accusers that are going to come up and say, oh, wait a second, he did this or she did that. No, it is no condemnation today or forever and ever and ever. And the condition we saw was for those that are in Christ Jesus, okay? Christ, that, that's a description of union with Christ, comes about by faith in Jesus where all the saving benefits of what Jesus did on the cross and in his resurrection are applied to my moral account forever, and so, it's, am I in the life preserver? Am I in the boat? Am I in Christ Jesus? Because there are two kinds of people, those that are in Christ and those that are not. And those that are in Christ are recipients of this saving grace from God. Those that are not are not. Which are you? Which are you today? No condemnation, what a wonderful truth. We're free from it forever. And now Paul moves into this uh, Again, he's explaining what it means, to how God accomplished no condemnation. Terrible sentence, but you know what I'm saying. Okay, I'll get it going here. You just hang in there, all right? So let me read now verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the uh, mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. May God bless his word to us today. And if uh, right now you're like totally confused after I read that, I felt exactly the same way this week as I opened the Bible and like getting ready for this message and I read the section for the, for the text today and I was like, wow, what does that mean? And how am I ever going to figure that out enough in order to preach it three times on Sunday? So I am thankful today for some help that trusted advisors like John Stott and D. Martin Lloyd-Jones and others as I was able to read their teaching on it, kind of unpacked it for me and helped me make sense of it. And today I want to help you make sense of it. And there's wonderful truth here in this passage. It's a very dense doctrinal teaching section. And we see that because nearly every verse begins with the word for. Okay. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. And the only repeat you get from 4 is, uh, is in verse 4 where it says, in order that. So this is Paul in like pure lawyer mode. This is Paul in gospel teaching apologist mode. He is explaining something. And so he goes for this and for this and for this. Now, verses 3 and 4 sound familiar. It is because they ring with the language of justification, which we've seen over and over in Romans already. Let me just walk through this briefly. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do 
By sending his own son. Tell me if as I read this, this sounds like any famous verse you know. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. For God sent his son into the world. I don't know, sounds like in some other verse maybe you've heard. Of course, it is the famous John 3.16. And indeed, this little section here, it's like this little John 3.16 in the midst of the text. And over and over again in Romans, we have heard this language of the law. Okay, the law, the law, the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, the Torah. And you might be like, enough of the law, Paul. Okay, we've heard enough about the law. Why do you keep hitting on the law? It is because in the church at Rome that he's writing to, there was Gentile Christians and there were, there were Jewish Christians. And for those Jewish Christians, their whole life up till Christ, their whole orientation towards being right with God depended on them obeying the law. And so Paul wants to constantly bring this up. Listen, you are not under that old way of thinking. You are not righteous because you fulfill the law. And so he's pounded the point home over and over again. In fact, he says here, sinners are incapable of right standing with God based upon their own life, their own merit, and fulfilling the law. Why is that? Well, part of it is maybe, it, well, part of it, Paul says, is us. Our flesh has been weakened. We can't obey God's law because of sinful, of the sin nature within us. And part of it is deficiency in the law itself. Because the law is great at condemning us, but it provides no solutions for saving us. If I could draw an analogy, think about with me, if you have a broken leg or something, and you go to the doctor, and you say, I think my leg is broken. And the doctor says, what? Let's take a, an x-ray. And so you go into the x-ray machine, and you lay on the, the thing, you know, and they take a picture of it, and they put it up on the light, and they say, hey, look. Your leg is broken. Look, there's a fracture right here. Because x-ray machines are really good at telling you what's wrong, telling you what's broken. But after, if you're on that, that x-ray machine, you can yell at the machine all you want, fix my leg. Can't do it. X-ray machines are really bad at fixing things. All they can do is tell you what's broken. And the law of God is like that. It's great. It tells us the character of God. It describes how we're supposed to live. But because we are all sinners, all it does now is condemn us. It can't fix anything. If this thing is going to be fixed, it's going to be because somebody else is going to do it. Because us obeying the law will never make it. And by the way, this is kind of a general description of all of man's attempts to be right with God by our own merits and our own goodness. And the religions of the world are all in some way suggesting that man can fix his problem. But the Bible comes along and Romans comes along and says, it doesn't matter if you go to Mecca. It doesn't matter how many times you wash in the Ganges River. It doesn't matter if you uh, uh, pray on your knees up the stairs in Rome. It doesn't matter how much you do all of that. Why? Because we all fall short of the glory of God. And if we don't think that, we should just look at the law of God and it condemns us and tells us how far short we fall. The law can't save us and we can't save ourselves. But hallelujah, God did it. And that's what this verse says. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh 
he condemns sin in the flesh. And here we have this kind of Trinitarian description of how God accomplished it. God sent his son. So we're talking about God the Father who sends the second person of the Trinity, called in the Bible the Son and granted the name on earth, Jesus, sends his son into the world, inferring that he existed prior to when he showed up here. And indeed, he is the eternal son of God. Jesus came into this world, sent by God himself, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now think about this one with me for a little bit, because if you read the commentaries, they get to that phrase, and there's like pages about this little phrase. In the likeness of sinful flesh, wait a second, I thought he was actually human. But Paul, you're saying he was only sort of in the likeness of flesh? Is that what you're saying? And wait a second, it says likeness of sinful flesh. I thought Jesus was pure and holy, and yet he's in the likeness of sinful flesh? What is he saying here? And what we have here is Paul threading the Christological needle, holding two very important truths together grammatically. Likeness. There's a a heresy called docetism that says Jesus only appeared to be human. He was all God. He only appeared to be human. They like words like likeness. And then on the other side of the ditch to fall on is the, the, the sinful flesh part. But notice that Paul says he is in the likeness of sinful flesh. It doesn't say that he was sinful flesh. And so he threads the needle here holding two truths very important. The full humanity of Jesus. Indeed, he was totally human and the full purity and righteousness of Jesus. He was in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not sinful flesh. Love little truths like that, where we see the Christology of of the Bible laid out for us. I think first service, amen, somewhere in there. I didn't describe it very well, but we should be very glad that Jesus was both human and pure. If he wasn't human, he couldn't die for humans, and if he wasn't pure, he wasn't a worthy savior. So there we got that, that a little better. Let me write that down differently for third service. I think that came out better when I was like, what's wrong with you people? (laughs) Verse 3. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Most of the time when you see the righteous requirement of the law, it says righteous requirements of the law. And it's talking about how Jesus perfectly obeyed the law in his life and therefore could die for sinners not being a sinner. But notice the text isn't right uh, requirements, it is requirement of the law. This is not talking about Jesus, this is talking about us. And that the fruit of what God has done in our life is that now we are enabled to actually obey the law. Not perfectly and not as the condition of our salvation, but as the fruit or the byproduct of it. Prior to coming to faith in Christ, the law was all condemnation. Now in the spirit, I can look at the law as a means and a plan for how I can live in a way that pleases God. And the Bible calls that freedom. Freedom. We're free from law's condemnation and we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to live righteously, which we could not do prior to salvation. So if I can return to my x-ray illustration a moment. The x-ray says that we are morally broken. God, the spiritual surgeon, repairs the break. And now you and me as Christians are enabled to walk in freedom that we never could while we were broken. So 
I've had two knee surgeries. If you ever had something like this, you wear that brace, you can't wait for the day that that brace comes off. Why? Because it means you can walk again. You can maybe run again. Or these athletes, when they get injured, and it was like, how long is it going to take? How do you know when an athlete is, has been healed, when he can jump again, when he can run again? We have any uh, young people here that have braces on their teeth? Go ahead, raise your hand, be proud. Okay, we got two right here. All right, maybe old people, older people are doing that now too. But uh, so we got two, or at least here, maybe some others here. You have a day of freedom coming in your life that it's going to be so fantastic. I'm here to tell you. Because I had braces myself for two and a half years. The day they put them on is like the worst day of your life. You think, is it always going to feel like this? Like this sharp barbs in my mouth. And you get the list of things you can't eat anymore. And you just think, this is horrible. The day of freedom is coming. I'm telling you right now. When they take those braces off, and all of a sudden, for the first time, you can just, mmm. <laughs> Many of you have had braces, you know. It's like so smooth and wonderful. And you can eat popcorn again. The day of freedom is coming for you. The braces are going to be removed. And you will be free once again. That's freedom. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And from this point on in our text, Paul is drawing this this comparison between two ways of thinking, two different motivations, and two different ways of living. One is motivated by what he calls the flesh, and we've seen this before in Romans. And the flesh is not, it's not like my physical, sometimes in the Bible it's this physical body, but it's not here. The flesh is that internal motivation of my heart. Some translations go with sin nature. The mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that is guided by the sin nature versus the mind that is set on the spirit. Two different internal motivations, two different priority sets that we can live according to. Now notice the contrast here. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I have a chart here that just sort of shows these, these, uh, these two different mindsets, these two different lifestyles, which Paul says... Uh, describes as being motivated primarily, the flesh is motivated by worldly priorities. They live according to the things that this world says are really, really important. But the Holy Spirit-led life is motivated by spiritual priorities. This leads to death. This is hostile to God. But notice that those that are led by the Spirit experience life and peace. Now, if you're here right now going, man, I want more of this side of my life. Like, you're, thinking, you're taking notes. You're not writing this down. You're like writing this down. Okay, I need to be motivated by worldly priorities so that I can live a lifestyle that leads to death because I want more hostility to God. Okay, you're like an idiot today because <laughs> look where it leads to. Who says that's the life I want? That's the destiny that I want? No, Paul's laying this out and he's trying to help us realize 
that this sin nature and this way of living leads to this. But praise God, by his grace, we are enabled to have that. Now the repeated verb here is set their mind. I think it's in here five times in this little passage. One author calls it the absorbing objects of thought and interest, affection, and purpose. Is, is the inward core of my being motivated by the flesh or motivated by the Holy Spirit? Is it indwelling sin that controls me or is it indwelling spirit that controls me? Now realize the unbeliever, and by the way, as I talk about unbeliever, there but by the grace of God go I. Okay, this is not disparaging. This is all of us prior to God's grace in our life. But it is descriptive, and Romans talks about this. The unbeliever has no alternate motivation. All they have is this. We are born in sin. We're, we receive a sin nature. It's all, it's all the unbeliever has is to live for those things, to have their minds set on the flesh, and the result of that is that they are never free to please God with their life. Never. Here's Hebrews 11. Although without faith it, and without faith it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith it's impossible to please God. Now this is not to say that the unbeliever can't be a great neighbor and the unbeliever can't be a great family member. And, uh, you know, somebody you want to go to the ball game with or whatever. Okay, that all can be true. And common grace allows people all over the world, whether they believe in God or not, to experience wonderful sunsets and, and experience blessings of family love and all the rest. That's God's common grace to mankind. But what matters here is not what we think about people, but what God thinks about people. And what God is saying here is without faith and without the Holy Spirit, nobody pleases God. And the result of this is so dis disparaging. Is that a word? I don't know. Different. You've got death on the one side and life and peace on the other. The flesh leads to death. That's physical death. But it also is, death is is separation from God, and the lifestyle that is led on this side is increasingly leaving God's purposes in their life. It's hollowing us out. That's why if you ever see, you know, some TV special or whatever, and it's like, you know, uh, rock stars of the past, you know, rock stars of the 80s or something, they'll call it like that. And they show pictures of these rock stars when they were in their 80s, or not in their 80s, but in the 80s. You know, they're young, they're hip, they're popular. And now they show them, because they're still doing county fair uh, concerts, <laughs> and now they show them, and how do they look? They look terrible. They look so bad. Apparently, a lifestyle of drugs, sex, and rock and roll isn't good for you. And to see those stars as they are after a life of just doing that... You know, sin is pleasurable for a season. And that one night back in 89, it was fantastic. Amazing. But you live that lifestyle, you're living in a direction that hollows out your humanity and hollows out the virtues that God placed within us as image bearers. 
It takes us away from who God intended us to be. That's why, like, sometimes on our, on our local TV or uh, newspaper website, uh, which I read online, I'll sometimes stumble upon, like, the recent arrests. Have you ever seen this? Lake County recent arrests. Some, I see some policemen shaking their head. You bet I do. I see one right over here. You know them on a first-name basis. Uh, but you look at, the, you look at the, the things that these people are doing, and it's like every day in Lake County, and it's like theft and bribery and forgery and, you know, uh, uh, drugs and, and domestic violence and all, all the, it's like, wow, this is going on every day. Thank God for police uh, officers that deal with that and handle with it. I don't know how you do it. But to... Uh, Amen. But you look at their pictures. They look terrible. Like, if, if we want to keep kids off drugs, forget all the other stuff we're doing. Just show pictures of people who are on drugs. Their eyes are hollowed out. They're emaciated. They look terrible. Why? Because that's what sin does. It's death ultimate death, but also death as I'm living. It's like a kind of living dead. Sin is a journey further and further from ourselves, made in the image of God. But notice that the spirit-led life is the opposite of that. If one is death, the spirit-led life is, it's gone, life and peace. Life and peace, and who doesn't want more of that in their life? So Paul here, by the way, just to be clear, this is not a message exhorting us to be led by the Spirit. Now, Paul does that, Galatians 5 and in other places, and that's all good about yielding to the Holy Spirit and keeping step with the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit. These are things that, are, that matter to us. Paul is not urging us to be led by the Spirit. He is saying that Christians are led by the Spirit, that we have the Holy Spirit within us. This is about sanctification and God's good work in our life to change us from the life of sin towards the life of sanctification. As John Stott points out, thus God justifies us through his Son and sanctifies us through his Spirit. And Romans 8 is a Holy Spirit chapter and talking about how important it is the work that the Spirit is doing within us. And I said last week, we need paradigm shift. Praise God for right Christology, and I will forever preach here, at least till I die, it's all about him. But that is not to disparage or diminish the glorious role of the Holy Spirit in the church because it is the Spirit that enables us to live a life free from sin. Not ultimately or perfectly, Q Romans 7, but increasingly, Overcoming the bondages of the old way of life. It is new life by the Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, none of this, what I'm talking about, makes sense anyway. I mean, you could be here right now going, I don't get it. I don't get it. You want to, here's why you don't get it. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Amen. You know, just to give an illustration of this, the story goes of two very famous uh, uh, British leaders, William Pitt and William Wilberforce. 
already mentioned William Wilberforce once, famous for really leading the legislation to abolish slavery in the British Empire. He goes down as one of the great men in all of history. William Pitt, a British Prime Minister, I believe, at age 24. And this is when Britain was the power of the world. Imagine that. This is an incredibly capable guy. Both of them are. If, if you go to Westminster Abbey today, both of these guys have statues in Westminster Abbey in their honor. So this is a, a power duo, and they were very close friends. And Wilberforce was a, a dedicated Christian, evangelical Christian. He loved William Pitt as his friend. William Pitt was kind of like a cultural Christian, and Wilberforce was convinced he actually, he, he wasn't actually, you know, saved or, or uh, uh, a true Christian. And he had a huge heart for his friend. Well, there was, a, there was a preacher in London that Wilberforce loved to hear preach, and he was convinced if William Pitt could hear this guy preach, maybe God would use it in his life. And so he begged him and begged him and begged him, and finally uh, Pitt said, okay, for you I'll go. So they go to church that day, and the guy gets up and preaches the sermon. Wilberforce is glowing. He's loving it. He thinks it's fantastic. It's moving him. When the whole thing is done, William Pitt says to Wilberforce, you know, Wilberforce, I had not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. Maybe you're William Pitt today. I'm up here talking. We've read God's word. For you today, it makes no sense at all. You don't get it. In some ways, you don't care. You were looking at your watch. You're like, let's get out of here. Why? Why are there some people here totally psyched about this and some people here who could care less? The Bible says the difference is the Holy Spirit. It's not me or my preaching or whatever. I'm just a sinner, a human being. like ever. I'm just opening God's word and saying this is what it says. The difference is not the preacher. The difference is the Holy Spirit resident in the person's life because he animates God's good work within us. He helps us understand these things. And without the Holy Spirit, the gospel doesn't do anything. Let me illustrate it this way, another way. A few weeks ago, I was at home with the girls Jennifer was shopping up by the mall. It was, you know, kind of starting to get dark outside. It was a cold day. Jennifer calls me and says, the battery's dead in the van. I'm like, oh, really? But hey, nothing to worry. We always keep jumper cables in the van. I said, do you see anybody around you that looks safe that maybe <laughs> you could ask? I don't want to have to get in the car and drive all the way up there. She says, hold on. And right at that moment, there was this elderly couple walking past. And she, she asked them, hey, could you give, give me a jump? They're like, sure. So she says, okay, I'll call you right back. So 10, 15 minutes later, she calls back. She says, it's not working. I'm like, who did you ask? I mean, just come on, hook it up. <laughs> she says, we tried. It's just not working. I said, okay, fine. I'll, be, I'll, I'll come. So I load the girls in the car. We drive all the way up to the Highway 30 in the mall there. And sure enough, there it is, just dead as a doornail. I said, you know, I'm the husband. I got this. So I hook up the wires. I hook it up on the car. We let it run a while to charge. I tell her to, you know, rev it up here. I try it. Nothing. 
We tried and tried and tried, nothing, nothing, nothing. Finally, I'm like, I think we need a new battery. I said, let's go over to AutoZone and get a new battery. So we all load in the car, we drive over to AutoZone. By the way, I'm a big fan of AutoZone now <laughs> on Highway 30. And uh, as I'm walking in, I say to the guy that's standing outside, I said, hey, I need a new battery. He says, I'm the manager, let me help you. And uh, I told him the car and the vehicle and all of that, and, and he says, let's, let's drive over to your wife's van and let's take a look at it. So he gets in his own vehicle, he drives all the way over, crosses Highway 30 to do this. Did I mention it's cold out? I don't imagine that. So we get there, and he uh, hooks up the jumper cables. This is kind of my moment. I was so glad it didn't work. It was like, okay. <laughs> my man card is still insured here. I knew what I was doing. And he goes, I think you need a new battery. I said, I kind of thought that too. So he takes the battery out, smashes his thumb doing it, takes the battery. We drive all the way back over to the store. We get to the store, he says, this is the battery you need, but our computers are down, you have to pay cash. It's $130. Like, who carries $130 of cash on them? <laughs> Not us. So what do you do when you need money? I called an elder of Bethel Church. <laughs> I said, do you have, I need 100, 130, 150 bucks, can you bring some money up? They happen to have it, some, you know, gobbled it together in the, in, the, in the house and they drove it up to us. I paid for the battery. The man, the manager, gets the battery. He says, I'll go help you put it in. Drives all the way back over. Uh, let's do business with AutoZone on Highway 30, everybody. <laughs> Drives all the way over, and he puts it in, and he connects it, and we turn it, and guess what happened? Fired right up. <laughs> I was so moved by it, I think I offered some of the elders money as a thank you to the guy. That was a joke. I don't remember which category of my billfold the money came out of uh, for that, but uh, he declined and just was glad to help. So why do I tell you that whole story? It's kind of a long story. Here's why. Because our hearts are like that dead battery. If you've got a loved one in your house that's not a Christian, you can have Billy Graham sermons running on your television 24-7. You can have Bible verses on the fridge every day of the year. You can have Moody Radio on your car every time he or she gets in the vehicle with you. You can do all those things, but human beings can't jumpstart spiritually the human heart. This is something that only God can do. And when God does it, he makes us alive by the Holy Spirit. And now we are free from the old death and we are free to a new life where I actually can do the things that the law calls me to do. Not to earn my salvation, but as the fruit of God's work in my life. And that the Bible calls newness of life by the Holy Spirit. It is freedom forever from the bondage of the old way of living and thinking. And that is why William Pitt could not understand what that preacher was talking about. And that might explain, my dear friend, why you're here and you don't get it. You just don't get it. What do you need? You need a new heart. You need a new battery. And God offers it to anybody who will put their faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection. 
Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And in that salvation, here comes the Holy Spirit giving us a new heart, a new set of priorities, and enabling us to live a new direction of life, not away from the things of God, but towards the things of God. Not perfectly, read Romans 7, but directionally towards what God wants in my life in a way that I can actually please God. And so to ask today, where, where are you in this? Where are you? Now you might say, well, I'm, I'm really not sure because I'm not exactly sure what that kind of difference in life looks like. Very quickly, Galatians, another book written by Paul, chapter 5, huge section on the Holy Spirit. Paul describes what it looks like to be led by the Spirit and what it looks like to be led by the flesh. And these two things couldn't be any more different. Look here. Okay? Here's the fruit of being led by the flesh. And you see the list here. Sexual immorality, impurity, you know, strife, jealousy, anger, envy. Bunch of, bunch of bad stuff on this side. And yet look at the Holy Spirit. What does he produce in us? Love, joy, peace, goodness. Now, if you're here going, man, I want more of this side on my, in my life. What are you thinking? Because I think every single person here looks at this list and says, oh, how I want that in my life. And we attempt to make sin be the, be the means by which maybe these things will happen, but they always end up with these things. It is by the Spirit of God that these things are produced in our life. And again, Romans 8 is not urging us to be led by the Spirit. Galatians 5 does that. He is saying, this is the way that Christians are. They are led by the Holy Spirit in their life. So it is both explanation and exhortation for sinners to turn in faith to Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit. And the net effect of that is a Spirit-led life where the ongoing reality and the eternity is life and peace. Listen to Gordon Fee's summary of this whole section. It's so good, I want to read it to you. Deliverance from the tyranny of sin, affected through the atoning work of Christ, as an experienced, ongoing reality, is the work of the indwelling, life-giving spirit. Okay? And that's the freedom of verses 1 and 2. It is freedom from condemnation and freedom not to sin. Freedom not to be dominated by the flesh anymore. It is freedom to be human as God intended. So to ask today, which is it for you? Indwelling sin, indwelling spirit, flesh, Holy Spirit. Which of these is the controlling principle of your life? And what might that mean for what God would have you to do?